God, we, we thank you today for, for music and for the way that it moves not only our minds, but our heart and our soul, lifts our face up toward you. God, we thank you for community, for, for people to come around us, for your brothers and sisters in Christ that you've given us in the church. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have been, by your spirit, ministering to each one of us today. And God, I pray, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that it speaks to us. Lord, I, I pray that we would be good hearers today, and not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word too. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're walking through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're considering in this letter... Paul's example and also his instructions about Christian maturity. Uh, Turn to Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to read um, verses 10 through 15, just to remind us how we are defining maturity and understanding what maturity maturity is. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Just for our own Definition for maturity over the, the course of the next couple of months. Defining maturity in this way, summarizing it in this way. Knowing Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And that this is the, the goal of the Christian life, to come to know him and to become like him in his death and in his resurrection. So our scripture today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 14 uh, through, uh, verses 12 through 18. So if you're going to turn a couple pages back and uh, want to hear these words uh, spoken today. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul says this, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and if you remember, what has happened to him is that he is, he's in prison. Um, I learned this week that he might be in prison or he might be on house arrest. We're not exactly sure, but he's, he's been arrested. He's imprisoned in Rome. And he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Because as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole Roman guard and to everyone else in Rome that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So Paul is in prison. And then he goes on to say, It is true that some brothers preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. 
The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here in defense of the gospel. But the former do so out of selfish ambition, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice. Paul is suffering. In these verses, Paul describes the situation that he finds himself in. Remember, this is a letter written toward the end of his life. He's an old man now. He has completed three missionary journeys all over the Roman world, and now he is imprisoned in Rome. And as we read through this, the rest of this chapter, we find out that Paul believes that it's a very real possibility that this arrest and imprisonment will end in his execution. So not only that, not only... Is he being persecuted by the Romans? But there are other Christians, other teachers and church leaders who are in some way using his imprisonment to their own advantage. And we don't know the details of that. We don't know who these teachers were. We don't know what they were doing. But now it seems that that Paul's influence is minimized, at least they think. They can now take advantage and kind of fill in the gap uh, where Paul's leadership used to be. He's suffering he is suffering from external enemies, the tyranny of, a Roman, of the Roman government. And not only that, but now he is facing enemies within the church too. He's being betrayed by other Christians, by people who are supposed to be on the same team, maybe even people who are supposed to be his friends. And it's really difficult to know which of these two layers of suffering are more difficult being imprisoned by your enemies or betrayed by your friends, which is harder. It's tough to know. But these are both two very difficult sorts of suffering that Paul is experiencing at this time. He is suffering. There are a few things that you can count on in life. A few things that you can be certain you will experience. And one of those things is suffering. You will experience pain in your life, pain of all kinds. We live in a fallen world, a world where evil and sickness and death are very real. None of us live our lives untouched by those realities. And as followers of Jesus, there are also the additional struggles and suffering that come from following Jesus. In another one of Paul's letters, also written towards the very end of his life, he says this, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul knows suffering. He knows that pain and trials are a part of human life and even more so a part of the life of the follower of Jesus. And so today we are going to talk about the relationship of suffering and maturity in the Christian life. How does suffering relate to the vision of maturity that Paul lays out for us, this vision of maturity to know Christ and to become like Christ? And there are two different angles that I want us to consider today as we think about suffering and how it relates to our maturity in Christ. And first is to take a look at Paul's example of maturity in these verses. How does Paul model for us 
what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus in the midst of suffering. And then second, just want to talk about how the scriptures teach us that suffering produces maturity. Suffering produces maturity. I hate this sermon. <laughs> but this is, this is a key part of understanding what the scriptures say to us about pain and suffering in our life. That it produces maturity. There's a, an old children's book that we have in our house called, um, called Going on a Bear Hunt. Do you remember that story? There's a family, and they decide they're going on a bear hunt. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. I'm not afraid. And then along the journey, they bump into all kinds of obstacles. They run into a swamp. They run into mud. They run, run into a forest. And whenever they run into one of these obstacles, they say, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. I'm not afraid. But here is the dark forest. And the family says, can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go around it. You gotta go through it. How does Paul show us what it means to suffer? How does he model maturity and suffering? Well, first, Paul doesn't ignore his suffering. He knows he has to go through it. He doesn't brush it off as no big deal. He doesn't say, well, you know, there are other people who have it worse than me. I just need to kind of buck it up and get over it. Paul faces the facts. He names his suffering. I'm in prison and I just might die at the end of the day. I have brothers in Christ out there who should be supporting me and praying for me, but instead they're using my imprisonment for their own selfish advantage. Paul faces the facts of his suffering. And in the Christian life, there is no need to pretend that your suffering isn't real or to minimize it. And I think there's a great temptation for us to do this, to avoid our pain or to avoid our suffering. Maybe sometimes to even believe that what strong faith is, is to pretend that suffering isn't really affecting us. And that's not what maturity is. Paul doesn't do that here. He doesn't ignore his pain. He names it. I'm in prison and I might die. People who should be my friends and my comfort, comforters are stirring up trouble for me. So the first step that, that Paul offers to us in his model of being mature in the midst of suffering is that he doesn't ignore it. He names it. He knows the facts of his suffering. Second, Paul looks for God's purposes in it. First, as he thinks about his imprisonment, he sees that his suffering is working itself out as a testimony that points to Christ. The whole palace guard, all of the, the, the Roman soldiers are beginning to know that Paul is in chains for Christ. Many of the brothers in Christ there in Rome are hearing about Paul's imprisonment and they are being encouraged to go and to proclaim the gospel. And we know that this is true throughout time and throughout different parts of Christian history, that when suffering comes to the church, it, it emboldens the church to go. And that's what's happening here in, in Paul's life. He sees that his imprisonment, his testimony for Christ is actually contributing to the spread of the gospel. 
Paul even sees God working through the selfish ambitions of these brothers. And this has been a hard one for me to work through this week. Paul leaves the motivations of these teachers completely in God's hands. He knows that there is some selfish ambition, some rivalry in them that's causing them to act in the way that they did. And we don't know what they're doing, but Paul knows that this is being motivated by selfishness to stir up trouble for him. But he says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. Paul has this gospel-centered and eternal vision in the midst of his suffering. My pain and my suffering are real, but I know that God is at work in it. God is bringing about his purposes in my suffering, and I'm going to name that and rejoice in it. How is it that Paul gained this perspective? How can he gain this mature perspective of suffering in his life? I want to suggest to you that Paul didn't gain this perspective by just flipping on a switch in his brain and trying hard to see it. Paul gained this perspective on his suffering through experience. He gained this perspective over the course of decades of following Jesus, of walking through trials and suffering and persecution and seeing God continue to work through it. Paul's past suffering produced maturity in him so that here at the end of his life, while he is imprisoned in Rome and his friends were out there betraying him, he could slow down and realize, I've seen this before. This kind of thing has happened to me before, and I know that God was at work in it then, and he's in at work in it now, and so I'm going to pay attention and to see where God is in this. And he's able to name his suffering, and he's able to name God's work in it at the same time. This maturity was produced in Paul over time. Suffering produces maturity if we're willing to go through it with Jesus. As we live in this fallen world, as we live a life of following Jesus in this world that opposes his way, we are going to encounter suffering, we are going to encounter obstacles, we're going to face circumstances in our life that are going to be really hard. What is it in your life right now that's really hard? What is the pain? What is the suffering that you are enduring right now? Health problems, cancer diagnosis, is it a hurting marriage, a family member or friend who's sick? Maybe it is the betrayal of, of friends in your life or the loss of friendship in your life. Maybe even from those who you thought were very close to you. As we press on to take hold of the prize of knowing Christ and becoming like him, we are going to encounter suffering. It's absolutely certain. And you can't go under it. And you can't go over it. And you can't go around it. You gotta go through it. I have a, a mentor named, named Kevin who... Um, I talked with, I've been talking with a lot the last four or five years. He's been a mentor of mine in the last couple of years as, as things have been hard in the life of just life as well as life in, in the church. 
Um, he said to me one time, he said, Ryan, you know, I think you'd be a lot better off if you would just stop being so surprised when suffering comes your way, when resistance comes your way. Just stop being so surprised. At one point in uh, Paul's, uh, Peter's first letter, in First Peter, he says that we as Christians should not be surprised when we suffer the trials that come to us as if something strange were happening to us. But I think it's true that Christians in America, as we have so much wealth and comfort and safety and security, when suffering comes our way, we feel like that's a strange thing that's happening to us. Trials and suffering are a normal part of life in a fallen world, and especially so in the life of a follower of Jesus. And here's an even more fundamental truth about the Christian faith, that God chose to bring about his redeeming work, his reconciling work, by sending his son to come and suffer and die on a cross. One of the key ideas of our faith is that goodness and beauty and redemption and reconciliation comes through suffering. Jesus didn't go over it. He didn't go under it. He didn't go around it. He went through it. God brings about Christ-likeness, maturity in you through trials and suffering. And I don't know about you, but I don't like that very much. I want to be a patient person. I want to be a good person. I want to be a loving and deep person. I want maturity, but I want it without the suffering that is required to become that kind of person. It's just like wanting to be physically fit, to lose the 10 or 20 pounds, to build the muscle, but I don't want all of the work and diet that it takes to get that, right? It's the same thing in the spiritual life. If we want the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, well, part of that maturing, that fruit in our life, is going through the kinds of trials that produce that kind of fruit. You want to be mature. You want to know Christ and to become like Christ. You'll have to go through suffering. Maturity, growth, strength, the fruit of the Spirit is developed through suffering. And this truth is declared and demonstrated throughout the whole Bible. I'll just give a few examples to you. First of all, James 1, 2 through 4 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We also see this in the life of Israel in the desert. 
after God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt and they went through the Red Sea, did they immediately get to the other side of the Red Sea and all of a sudden there was all this flowing milk and honey? Is that what happened? No. Where did they go? The desert. <laughs> they crossed the Red Sea. They experienced God's salvation. And then they go into the desert. A lot of them didn't like it in the desert. Let's go back into Egypt. Those were the good old days back in slavery in Egypt. Because the desert the suffering that's required to get to the promised land is really hard to be in. But then once they got to the promised land, everything was great, right? They crossed the Jordan River, was good to go in the promised land, right? No, what was next? Canaanites, this big city of Jericho, there's still problems once they get into the promised land. But once they get rid of all the Canaanites, everything's good, right? What did we just learn about the last four months in Judges? All the problems are in us, in Israel too. We've still got problems. I was reading through the Gospel of John with some friends recently, and there's this really interesting part of um, John chapter 3. Turn with me to John chapter 3. I've been thinking about this uh, for the last couple of months, and I think this is a good time to to share some of it. John chapter 3. So this is the story of Jesus, uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night and talking to him about eternal life and what eternal life means. And so this is the chapter where we have you know, the, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it's such a familiar verse to us that sometimes we kind of read through the Nicodemus story and we kind of like go real fast until we get to that part. But just two verses before that is this really strange verse. John chapter 3, verse 14. He says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. There is a story about the Israelites in the desert. It comes in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 8 that Jesus is referring to here. And I'm going to to read it for you. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 8. It's a very odd, strange little story in the story of the the Exodus. Numbers 21, 4 through 8. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient along the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt, the good old days of slavery? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die here in the desert? It's hard out here. There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. And so the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Go pray to the Lord to take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. Do you think that God took away the snakes? The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. 
Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. God doesn't take the snakes away. He doesn't rescue Israel from the snakes. Instead, he provides a way for them to be healed when they suffer. There is no getting rid of the suffering and the snakes in your life. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You have to go through it. We see that as the story of Israel progresses in the desert and then into the promised land and then throughout the time of the kings and then into the time of Roman occupation. There's always suffering. I really don't like this sermon. The second thing that I've been thinking about in this story is that if we're going to experience healing, we actually have to look at the thing that's causing our suffering. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We can't go around it. We have to go through it. And we spend a lot of our time avoiding the things that, that scare us, that make us ashamed, or the things that cause us to suffer. But in order to experience healing from our sickness, we have to look at the thing that's keeping us sick. Physically, we have to go to the doctor. I'm presently avoiding a trip to the dentist. I have, I have really strong teeth. I've never had a cavity, but I have really bad gums. And I know that the next time that I go, there's going to be some things the dentist is going to say to me. So, I'm avoiding But if that part of me is going to be healed, I'm going to have to look at it, right? I'm going to have to go through it. We've been talking about mental health over the last few years here at Broadway, and specifically this last month. And one of the things our church leadership has encouraged you to do if you're struggling emotionally or spiritually or relationally is to find a counselor who can help you walk through that can help you to look at the things that are hurting and harming you so that you can understand those things and the root of some of your pain. Not so that you can wallow in it and stay in it. You go through suffering. You don't wallow and stay in it, but so that you can go through it and that you don't just spend your life going over it or under it or all around it, but going through it. A few years ago, I had a season in my life where I was seeing a counselor every week for a few months, and I'm on the waiting list right now to go see another one. Once a month, I meet with Mike Bowden for spiritual direction. I have a lot of friends in my life to help me pay attention to the different kinds of struggles that I face in my life. I've learned that I need to look at the pain and suffering and trials and just frustrations and disappointments in my life, but that I can't do that by myself. I need guides and friends and counselors to help me through that. And it's through going through that suffering, not over it or under it or around it, but through it, that we become more mature like Paul. Again, we want to be generous and kind. We want to be patient and gracious people. We want to be able to deeply care for and to feel the hurt of the people around us. We want to be all of those things. We want to be mature followers of Jesus. But so often, we want to be mature without the suffering and trials that produce that maturity in us. And in this fallen and broken world where sin and hurt and temptation and sin and death are all around us, when resistance to the gospel is baked into the society that we live in, to believe that we can be like Jesus 
without becoming like Jesus in his suffering? To believe that we can be like Jesus without becoming like him in his death is a lie that we need to put aside. At the center of our faith, at the center of God's story of how he chose to renew and redeem the world is the cross of Jesus Christ. Suffering is at the center of our faith. And what the cross of Jesus says is that redemption and goodness and beauty and reconciliation comes through suffering. Jesus didn't go under it or over it or around it. He went through it. The book of Hebrews says that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then was set at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that on the other side of the cross was glory and resurrection. I really don't like the message of this sermon, but it's true. This is the consistent, persistent message of the scriptures. I really like being comfortable and safe, and I really like for things to be easy. I have been a stubborn learner when it comes to the truth this message today. I am one of those people who want to be patient and kind and generous and spiritually mature without going through any of the trials that will produce that in me. But this is the persistent message of the scriptures. And really, this message would be unbearable, except for we know the end of the story, which is resurrection. Paul's ability to be in prison and to have that gospel lens, that eternal lens, was because he had confidence in the resurrection. His ability to suffer at the hands of his Roman enemies and the betrayal of his friends, his ability to do that uh, centered and grounded in Scripture came because he knew that no one, no one, no one could steal away the promise of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ, his Lord. In this world, on this side of Christ's return, suffering and pain will always be a part of our lives. Suffering will always be a part of our story, but it's not the end of our story. On the other side of the cross is the resurrection of Jesus. On the other side of your suffering, if you go through it and endure it with him, is this great gift of being mature in Christ, of knowing Christ and becoming like him in his death and in his resurrection. The great gift of going through suffering with Christ in our life is knowing that no one, No one, no one can take away your eternal hope, your eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ, your Lord. Amen? God, we pray that we would receive this hard word today. God, we thank you for Paul's example. And we thank you for his words of challenge to us. Lord, I pray that by your spirit that you would give us the the will and the ability to not ignore the pain and trials that come our way, but to, to receive them and to walk through them with you. 
And God, I pray that these trials that, that we go through with you, that they would develop what the scriptures say into us, that it would develop perseverance and godliness and maturity. Lord, I ask for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.